Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Good Trouble. My name is Reggie Williams. I'm one of your co-hosts here with Mr. Gregory Ball. What's up, Reg? How you feeling this week, man? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. It's been a long week, but I'm very excited for our conversation today. I'm super excited about our guest today because our guest today is someone who has been, I, I feel like it's been an inspiration for me in the in my in my time in journalism. And then also just, I feel like she's been in my home forever <laughs> in, mm. in, in the most positive ways, like, you know, good news. And like, I've, I have nothing but positive connotations with our guests today. So I'm super excited about our guests. Yeah, me as well. We're so excited to introduce Reverend Liz Walker joining us on Good Trouble. Reverend Walker, how are you? I, I am just honored to be with the two of you this day. How are, the, how are you, as a matter of fact? You know, I'm glad it's a Friday and I'm glad that I woke up this morning so I can't complain. Greg, what about you? I'm That's feeling, how I'm looking at it. Yeah. I'm feeling right. good. I'm feeling, you know, I, I've I will tell you that this year was a, a, a interesting year for me. And but I'm feeling hopeful about next year. I'm super excited about the work that we're doing in King Boston and and partners like Mass Budget and and the ability in within my work to do something cool like this. I get to talk to really smart people and learn stuff. So I can't, you know, you can't beat that. And they're paying me. Oh man, I can't complain. <laughs> now, Reverend Walker, um, we know that you are a multi-hyphenate. We know that you have had many a career. We'd love to get a sense of your journey and how and how you got to where you are today. Can you give us a little bit of your background and a little bit of, of your journey? Yeah, where did well, you start off? Where did you start this whole thing off at? Well, you know, it's if, today I feel like it's been a journey that's gone on forever. I feel very old today. I think we're all, I think we're just weary here at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. But I actually uh, got involved in journalism, oh my gosh, uh, back in the 70s, 1973. I went to school to study journalism, to study writing, okay. and uh, got my first job on television in Little Rock, Arkansas, back in 1974. 4374 went from Arkansas to Denver, Colorado. I stayed out there about two or three years as a television journalist. I worked on a, a morning show out there and was a reporter, general assignment reporter from uh, Denver, Colorado to San Francisco. So I've had a really blessed journey. I've lived in some great cities. And I was in San Francisco when I got a call from Boston in 1980 to come here not realizing any, really having no idea what I was going to do in Boston. It was just another job opportunity. I love the idea of traveling and, you know, going to other parts of the country and Boston became my home. It, you know, this was the place that I grew and got the job on WBZ TV as the first African-American uh, main anchor desk, you know, so there were other African-Americans before me in the city. That's not the issue, but I was one of the first to put uh, to be put on the six o'clock and the eleven o'clock newscast as an anchor. So it's been a it's been an amazing journey. Now that's just part of my journey because I left TV news and got into ministry, and this has been the most exciting part. Believe it or not, <laughs> and I can say that because you think you know TV is everything. Just TV is. I've been all over the world. I've covered some incredible stories, but the work we're doing now is probably the most exciting so it's a it's been a journey that's that's how i describe it. it it's been it's been amazing well i i have a question let's 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 stay stay close to the beginning what was the thing that even piqued your interest in the world of journalism because you know telling telling the telling the stories of the world and, and talking to people like that is you know i feel like that's almost like a calling into itself you it know, is a call so what, what made you get interested in that What's well, you know, there? I grew up back in the uh, during the, the height of the civil rights movement. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, at a time when Martin Luther King was just beginning, uh, you know, his his march to uh, freedom and justice for people. Mm. And so I, I grew up in a kind of environment where there, I walk. I it, it blows me away. I went into the back door at Woolworths. I drank at the water fountain that was colored water fountain. So that was my life. And I, and I didn't know anything was wrong until people like Martin Luther King and other leaders said, you know, we, we want our equal rights. My point is when you're exposed to that kind of thing, I was also exposed to the possibilities that I could do 
something different. I grew up in a, in a town where, you know, the, the highest rung on the ladder was to be a preacher. My father was a preacher or to be a teacher. My mother was a teacher. But the idea of being a journalist was uh, who even knew? You didn't even know that was a possibility. So uh, getting into journalism in high school, I went to Little Rock Central High School. I had people who told me I could write and I needed to be exposed to something new. All of this was opening up then. I think young people today really don't have a, well, I don't know if we all have a, the grasp of history we need, but back in that, and I'm not that old, I'm old, but it, you know, in my lifetime, I've lived in places where all, you, know, you couldn't be a journalist. So the idea of doing that was the idea of kind of breaking into a new, um, a new area. It was uh, revolutionary. It was, uh, it was part of the struggle. So I became a reporter at a time when in Little Rock, when there hadn't, there'd been maybe one, Dorothy, uh, I was trying, Dolores uh, Handy, well, her name was Handy then, I don't know what her married name is now, but there were, there were few, very few black reporters. Mm. And I was like one of the first in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so it was that kind of thing. That's how I got into journalism because uh, my, my community pushed me in. Uh, my black community said that the TV stations needed to hire black people. And so my name was put up. I had gone to school for that and I got a job. So that was kind of the beginning of, of my career. And, and what I would imagine that there, because that call came from the community to go in to do this work, like you're, you're doing the work with a sense of responsibility um, that's even beyond just, you know, doing good work. Your thought process is, you know, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta go back to church on Sunday, or I gotta go, I gotta go home. You know, and the and make sure that I'm representing folks right. How, was that was that something that was really present? Absolutely, because my my job was tied to a struggle. I was never. It was never about me because I was so great, or I was such a great writer, or such a great television person. It was tied to the struggle, and that's how I've lived my life. Uh, uh, back in those days. So I owe my job to a lot of people who, who marched and protested and demanded equity. This was affirmative action back in the 60s and 70s when I got my job. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, it, it, it was, it took, you took it very seriously. Um, and uh, so my whole career has kind of been in that sense of being a part of something bigger than just my career. Uh, I Again, I like to write. Uh, I learned about television. That was not a plan. That just kind of happened. And, uh, you know, it, it was exciting, but it was also something bigger than just me. And I've always felt that way. I definitely want to thank you, Reverend Walker. Uh, you know, growing up here in the greater Boston area and going to youth programs that were teaching young people digital media and video production, seeing you on the news, being able to learn how to counter the narratives in the media and how to show up in, in representation of what we actually look like in these communities versus some of the disparate interests that we often see in media. It's been transformative, at least for me. And I also want to shout out uh, formerly Press Pass TV, now the Transformative Culture Project, working to train young people in digital media and video production. That's where I got my start. Um, I'm curious now looking at all of these different and competing interests that I just mentioned, You know, looking at the state of the world, looking at the moment that we're in, what are your thoughts on the current state of media and how you know we're all able, given this global pandemic really to sustain and to keep some of that hope alive that we talked about a little bit earlier? Well, if I take a broader look at media, what you guys are doing right now with this podcast is the most hopeful thing that I think is a part of it. Uh, because the, um, the democratization of media, meaning that everybody can have a voice now, uh, and we don't have to just rely on, now there's a downside to that, but that we don't just have to rely on the major uh, you know, media outlets, that we don't just have to rely on the networks, that everybody now, I think the most important uh, message out of this time is that we all need to tell our stories mm. and we all need to demand a voice in what's going on. That's the positive side. The negative side is that we all have a responsibility to truth. And that can be really shaky now, you know, because part of social media is part of, you know, podcast is, well, 
you know, who's talking, you know, is he honest? Is he talking the truth or is he just giving another opinion? Or you just have to be careful about, you know, your sources of information. But this kind of broadcast where you expose all kinds of, you know, people to new ideas or old ideas, I think is really important uh, in us generally finding our voice. This is a, a crazy time we're living in and there's so much information. The problem is not that we can't get enough, it's that we have too much. And so filtering through to find out your truth or what you need to know to survive is, is I think more difficult than ever. But on the positive side, I am glad that I see and hear more voices now. You know, our, our executive director, Imari Paz Jeffries, he, he's been saying, you know, in, in conversation that I've had with him about the podcast and in media, and we started talking about this whole idea, we have to push back against this wave of, of misinformation that's out there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a war of information going back and forth. And we have to, you know, as much as we're getting all this bad information, we have to put some good information in the air, which is why he's been leaning into some of the media efforts. Do you think that that's an, an imperative thing in in um, in this area of work for, for organizations like King Boston and just anybody who's doing this kind of work that they have to also have a media piece um, of what they're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. It's imperative. I like your word, imperative. Absolutely. Because you're an institution, King Boston, that has your credibility. You bring that with you. We know what King Boston is about. We know who Martin Luther King was. We know who Amari is and who you guys are. So you you have uh, you know you have solid uh, credibility in the community. People trust you. We're in a in a period of of a lack of trust. It's a, an epidemic of mistrust and distrust. And so people are vulnerable to all kinds of source you know information or misinformation. People are vulnerable to lies, and 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 that's a real problem right now when we need truth. So yes. It is imperative that organizations like yours, like ours, because I'm a part of the King Boston program, uh, we get the word out there. We we push back. And Mari's right on. That's exactly what you have to do right now, more than ever before. But I, I think, and, and I guess this is why I'm so, so super excited to talk to you. Like, when you think about, because I, I know that you have the, you've had the, you've seen all of it. Like you've seen it from through your career and even now in your work in the ministry, you're seeing that, that those stories and that are out there. How do we fight back against that? Like what, is, what are some of the ways that you think that, it, it, that we push back against that tide of misinformation? It, and you just have, it's perseverance. I, I wish I had a magic formula. I don't. Uh, it, I have worked with a, a COVID uh, pet, a vaccine information task force all over the place. The governors, the mayors, we're trying to make sure that people are getting information about the vaccine. There is so much disinformation and misinformation out there, and it's killing people. And, and I am, you know, I am baffled because... Uh, people don't have trust in hospitals, we, and, and and rightfully so. I'm not trying to say that you know there is not reason for some of this distrust, but we have to catch up really fast in trying to earn trust. We meaning institutions. So your institution already has it. You got to just keep working at it and getting this information out. And there's it's not rocket science, but it's going to just take this constant vigilance and constant intention. Uh, because we're up against uh, just horror. There was a, a story out. Uh, I don't know when this podcast, if it's live or runs later, but a story out about um, uh, TikTok uh, uh, pushing violence on kids that one day in particular, every kid is in a school is supposed to do something to promote violence. That's sick. And who, who does that? Right. You, you have to offset stuff like that. Uh, you know, I don't I hope and pray it didn't come to anything anywhere in the country, but it's 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 not just misinformation. It's dangerous in misinformation that we're up against now. These are these are frightening times in that sense. So I, I, I think the only answer is vigilance and, and perseverance at getting the truth out, which is what you're doing. So you can't give up. 
You can't get weary and you can't let go. And you can't, Michael Jackson had a song in the Wiz, uh, you can't break even, you, you, you can't win, you can't lose, you can't break even and you can't get out of the game. You mm. just have to stay at it is how I interpret that song. So you have to not give up. Absolutely. So when we start talking about not giving up, when you came to Boston, I'm sure in your journey here in the Boston area, there was some not giving up. How, what were your first impressions when you first got here? And, and how did you go from, because it seemed like you were kind of on a journey where you were doing what a lot of people in, in that era, and even now do, um, go and work in different markets, and you start off small markets, and you work your way up, and then eventually the idea is to get to LA or New York, so from there you can go national, right? So how, how does someone who was seemingly on that same path you know, says, you know what, I'm going to hang out in Boston. Like, what was it, what, first, what was it like when you first got here? And what were your impressions? And then what kind of turned you and said, hey, maybe I can make this my home? Well, I, when I got to Boston, I, had, I was in San Francisco. The union I belonged to, AFTRA, which was a television reporters union, went on strike. Mm. And after maybe about five or six uh, weeks it was clear to me I was not making any money and I had to find another job. We, we didn't know how this strike was going to work out. Boston was one of the first job offers I got. It was that simple. I had no master plan. I was not thinking of Boston as the next career move. It just happened. Uh, this is my faith journey now looking back, but at the time I didn't know it. And I, so I didn't know what to expect when I got to Boston. I wasn't, I wasn't as up on busing as everybody in, in, the, in the rest of the country was. I just hadn't focused on it. I was on the West Coast. I had done stories on the West Coast. I had covered incredible stories on the West Coast. I had covered uh, jo Jonestown, which was a suicide massacre of Black people. 900 to 1,000 people killed themselves and their children following a religious leader. I had covered the murder of Mayor Moscone. So I had been very um, uh, saturated in media in San Francisco and didn't know about anything about Boston. I say that because busing was a national story, but I wasn't that focused on it. So when I got here in 1980, this city was still reeling from busing. And, right. and, and, and one of the things that was happening is as a reporter, we couldn't go to certain stories. Now this was, a, thinking about that in Boston is really weird, but that's true. Our assignment desk would not send us to stories in Charlestown or South Boston. Then if you ended up going to a story in Roxbury, and this is, I was, they were so mad that they didn't want the media in there either. So I was like, you didn't know where to go. Mm -hmm. You know, there were um, heroes, of course, many heroes, but Sarah Ann Shaw, let me give a shout out for yeah. Sarah Ann Shaw, who is an icon in this city. Yes. Sarah Ann Shaw was my role model. She was already a reporter in Boston and she was already a, she was a revolutionary. She was an advocate. She, she, you know, came into this business like I did, not just to be a reporter, but to be a change broker. And so Sarah Ann Shaw kind of helped me and, and, and gave me a lot of lessons on what the city was about, the changes that we're going through. Um, uh, you know, I had some in incidents myself in the city that were not the friendliest incidents, but when you're in the media, you still are treated better than most people, at least back in the day you were. So I was unprepared for all that Boston was going through. I didn't know anything about it. I learned fast and, um, you know, and figured out a way to navigate it. But it's pretty tough back then as a reporter uh, because the city was just, uh, you know, the city had been traumatized. Now, this is interesting to me because I work with trauma now. Uh, the trauma of busing, the trauma of that horrible and um, very damaging period in the city's uh, history, which was for good, but, you know, just never really worked out and didn't work out that well, uh, people never healed from. So a lot of that, uh, the pain and wounds of that time across the city uh, still lingers, but you better believe it was lingering in 1980. Uh, and so that's what we had to get through. And uh, Sarah Ann Shaw was one of those people who helped me kind of survive that period. And I eventually fell in love with Boston because Boston's a tough town, mm. but it has a core, there's a heart here. Uh, you know, it's a, a beating and, and, and beautiful heart, I believe at the core of this city, despite all its problems, despite its tribalism, despite its economic um, a disparity that's huge, 
and I literally fell in love with the city. And that was kind of how I think my career uh, worked and took off in, in journalism. Wow. Because I, I just think about that because if if you're walking into, it's almost like you walk into a bar and then you're there for two seconds and then a fight breaks out. You know, you don't know what, wait, wait, wait. I don't know what's going on. Right. And then you get, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I just kind of walked into the wrong I thing. Came in for a drop of pepper Whoa. and all hell broke loose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, and it's so funny that now I'm dealing with trauma as a, as a, you know, as a mass issue, not just individual, not just psychological, not just emotional, but kind of as a collective issue, uh, I'm beginning to understand, you know, you don't go through situations like that and without some damage, you know, to you, especially if there's no way to heal. Right. Uh, so now I understand, but I had no idea what was going on then. And Boston was volatile. It was very volatile. So I, I, I always have thought of Boston as a place that when they is they they're gonna give you a hard time but if you stick around long enough that's when they fall in love with you and i feel like that was that kind of uh emblematic of your of your journey because i feel like initially probably it was kind of a little tough but then eventually it's just like oh that's liz walker that's that's the homie like we, we love her now i think you i think you do i think you stick it out I think you take your licks, you figure it out, you, you know, you, you survive. And then, and, and then the city kind of opens up to you. And I say the city neighborhoods, mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, not just the leaders, not just the TV people, but the community. And I think that's what, I hope that's what happened because I certainly fell in love with the city, but no, Boston will give you a couple of licks though. <laughs> you have to be strong mm -hmm. to survive this city. Uh, it's very lonely for, uh, particularly, I think, for Black people who move here, because mm -hmm. unlike other cities, um, it, it, it's harder to kind of find a place for yourself. It's um, you, you have to really, unless you, well, now you guys know better because you're a different generation. But when I came through, it, you couldn't figure out the middle class. You couldn't figure out the hangouts. Satch Sanders, basketball player, had a club downtown. And so that was, and then that closed. So it was hard to kind of figure out where your people were, you know, you can go to most black, you know, you go to Chicago, you go to Atlanta, you know how to find those areas. Boston was a little trickier. They're there, just a little trickier to find. So to find, uh, so it was lonely uh, and very much in media because there weren't that many black people in the media. Not that white people were, you know, standoffish, but to find your own was very difficult, I think, in this city. There's so much power there, uh, Reverend, when you talk about perseverance and when you talk about like the storytelling and the healing that's needed for us to really come together and to overcome very real traumas like the economic um, disenfranchisement that you spoke about, busing, making sure that our school books and our schools have the resources to talk about and unpack these types of challenges. Uh, looking at the moment that we're in, you know, for mass budget, we're working to make sure that our communities are getting, you know, their fair share of state and public dollars to support these types of programs. I'm wondering from that trauma informant perspective, how do we talk about things like money and, you know, like, you know, economic disparity in our communities while actively needing to overcome them. You know, Boston has one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. You know, the minimum wage is not raised at the rate of inflation given the cost of living. What are your thoughts on how, how do we heal this economic divide that we're facing? I think you have to do something radically. I, 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 it has to be radical steps because there's no, there's no slow way to do it. I love good trouble. Uh, I love that idea of good trouble. And I think you have to do that in a place like this because there's not, you're not going to get the playing field equal if you say, let's just wait it out and take it slow. Uh, that ain't going to work. And I've been around long enough to see that. This is new thought for me. I would have said 20 years ago, well, you know, it's going to change, but it doesn't seem to change because people don't give up power. You have to, you know, nobody says, oh, here, take, take all of this, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So I think that, you know, we have to demand ways to find equity. You know, I'm not saying illegal ways or, I mean, you have to figure it out, but it has to be a demand and it has to be radical. Uh, housing is unbelievable. If you leave Boston, I'm retiring at least partially and I'm moving uh, out of state uh, and I'm going to be back and forth. I could not afford a house in Boston now. 
If mm. I wanted to come back, I sold my unit in Jamaica Plain. Already, I could not afford my unit in Jamaica Plain. Well, that's something wrong. And if and I've saved up money, and I consider myself middle class. So if I'm in that state, think about people who don't are not middle class. You know, they're just right. out of. That's got to change. That has got to change. Uh, so how do you do it? I don't know the specific ways, but I know you're working on it. And I think you have to think out of the box. And I think you do have to be assertive. And I think we have to take radical steps for change to bring equity. Now, you also have to get people prepared for change. So that's yep. the trauma. You can't just say, you know, people have to be educated. People have to uh, know how, you know, know all the, you, so you have to do it all. You have to chew gum and walk at the same time. And it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, but there are a lot of good people who are who are on it. So I'm optimistic on it. I definitely, I, I feel and hear that, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we call them co-conspirators in good trouble, you know, at the at the federal level, you know, like Rep Presley and, you know, uh, Con Congresswoman Cori Bush, you know, out here advocating on the front lines, like in the hallowed halls of Congress and in front of the Supreme Court, like trying to make sure that we get our our resources in our communities. And then there's still this this yeah. lack of inherent mistrust with the system or, you know, the lack of the moral imperative to really help make sure that our communities are getting what they need. And this and not, epidemic is just, go ahead. I cut, I cut you off, please forgive me, but it's not just, you know, it's like you have to fight it from all sides. I mean, right. the idea that people have taken critical race theory and made it into some kind of great, horrible thing that's going to take your rights or take your freedom away, that's Good absurd. Monster. That's just stupid. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, it's just, but people, we. this is a battle. I mean, this right. is not, Again, nobody likes to give up power. So this is a battle. But I think that what we are doing, we meaning those of us who are fighting for equity and justice and, and economic, uh, uh, the end of economic disparity, we're on the side of right here. This is not, we're not, this is, this is just um, common sense, you know? So you have to keep fighting. Uh, but it's not an easy fight because you've got to, an enemy now it used to be the enemy was kind of quiet and you, you know, th there was an enemy, but you really didn't see it so overtly. Now you got an enemy that's like, okay, I'm not giving up nothing. And I'm not ashamed to tell you I'm not giving up nothing. Mm -hmm. So you're facing an enemy in a real confrontational way. Uh, that's scary, but you gotta, I think we have to fight for what's right. And Ayanna Presley is right on. And I, I, you know, sometimes I think, Ayana, you're a little, you're a little too radical for me. But I'm beginning to understand that it's that's what it's going to take. It's going to take that heavy lifting and that great big pushback to to fight against what we're talking about. And or, maybe fair. I, I know I'm talking too much, but maybe it's going to take all of us. It's yeah. going to take the radicals. It's going to take the moderates because I don't want to get caught up in a political. Mm -hmm. Right. One is we all have to participate. And you're not talking too much. This is a podcast. This is what we're supposed to do. <laughs> you, I would, look, I wish we would have a podcast with, with Reverend Liz Walker and we don't let her talk. You know, I get run out of this town. No, but I don't usually, I mean, you know, these are, I'm telling you, this has been kind of a, um, a evolution for me because this is not where I always was. But I think as I grow older and see the world as it's, as it is now, uh, I'm I, I I'm seeing new things. My eyes are open. That um, one of the most honest things that Donald Trump ever said was that system is rigged. The system is rigged against justice. The system is broken. Martin Luther King said it. He said, "You know, we go down the Jericho Road, uh, and we're trying to uh, you know help people on the Jericho Road, but the problem is the road needs to be fixed. It's not who you find on the road; it's why they're in that state. And I think it's it's I'm just beginning to really understand what that means. The systems have to change, and that's what this tension is right now. Do we change the system, or do we hold it up? And you know, it continues to be like it's always been. So I. I guess my one of my questions for you, other than that, I guess one of my questions is horrible. One of my questions for you is 
you know, you had this career in journalism, things are going good. You, you're, you know, you're one of the key figures in, in Boston media. What, how do you transition from that space into the clergy? How, you know, how do you move from you, basically one ministry to another? Mm. I never, again, this is, this is why I have faith. This is why I wear a cross, mm-hmm. why I preach, because it was definitely a spiritual move. Um, I had, uh, you know, gotten into TV and loved TV. There's a lot of money in TV back in the day. So it was, mm-hmm. it covered all, you know, checked off all the boxes for me. But uh, back in, uh, I guess it was around 1999, 2000, over time, I was just, I grew kind of dissatisfied with what I was doing internally. I knew uh, some incredible people, uh, Ray, Ray Hammond and Gloria White Hammond, who are uh, very much uh, institutions in this community who had been uh, doctors. And they were, they changed from being doctors into ministry. Uh, they're both still uh, medical doctors. And so they were my role models. We went on a story to, uh, they went and I covered them uh, when they went to Sudan back in uh, 2001. And I went as the kind of reporter, though I was really doing it on my own. And they interpreted what was happening to me as a call into ministry. Mm. I really respect both of them. I really, you know, love them. I, I, you know, I know about church. We, I mean, most of us grow up with some kind of connection, if not personal, you know, auntie or grandma or somebody. Mm. And I had grown up church, but I was never called in my mind. But Gloria and Ray uh, said, you are, God is calling you. Now, it, it, you know, mind you, we're in a place of a civil war. This was in the 2001. Sudan was in uh, was a country that was eating its own. It was killing itself. And it still is in some ways. It's divided into two countries. And so we went there to investigate allegations of slavery. But I had never been in a war zone. I had never been in East Africa, at least not this part of the East Africa. I had never seen people living in such deprivation and marginalization. And Gloria and Ray were a part of a group that was trying to do something about it. And that just blew me away that people could get up from Boston, travel on the other side of the world and and have the audacity to think you could do something about something that was intractable. Because this war in Sudan, that's been going on forever. But they were very, uh, you know, uh, determined that they could make a difference there. And I was inspired by them. They said I was being called by God. So it was that trip that kind of changed things for me. Uh, I came back. I uh, And I'm, I'm maybe getting the times off because I might have done some of this simultaneously. But I uh, gave my resignation, WBZ TV, uh, decided to go to Harvard Divinity School, uh, just did all of that kind of in a two-year period. It was crazy. Wow. My brother lost my mind. He said, you need to go to a psychiatrist because don't nobody leave a six-figure job to go traipse into Africa. You're out of your mind. And uh, people thought I was crazy, but it was the right thing to do. Um, and, that, and this was after about a 20-year career, right? Yeah, that was 21 years I'd been in television. And so, you know, people don't leave t- t- television generally unless they get fired. And you know, that's, that was really odd, <laughs> but I think uh, that was a call, as you have said, uh, into doing something far more. So we worked in Sudan for 11 years and mm. from back, back and forth, we didn't, I didn't live in Sudan. Mm. I went back, commuted to South Sudan. Uh, and from there, I came back and got into a new ministry. So that was all kind of of this dramatic call to do something different. Um, uh, and we did. And, and we built a girls school in Southern in South Sudan, that is still up. I don't think it's operating now because Sudan has been in conflicts forever. And the conflict goes on there. But that was my uh, kind of call to do more than report on the news. It was to be a part of the, you know, back to my my upbringing. You, you were to be part of the change. Reporting is part of it, but you could even go deeper into the change. Um, I'll give you a perfect, now here I go starting to talk too much now, but I give you a perfect uh, example of that. When Katrina hit mm-hmm. in uh, 
the late 90s, I think it was, uh, reporters from all over the world were in helicopters flying around uh, New Orleans area, reporting on this devastation, the flooding and the hurricane and people, you know, people were on roofs with, uh, you know, white sheets and asking for help. And reporters were covering that, except for a few reporters started getting it that there was something more they had to do. And I remember Anderson Cooper, I saw this one, Anderson Cooper started helping people, started, wait a minute, I can't just report on this. These people need some help. Right. So that was kind of my, uh, mm. nowadays you see more reporters who do advocacy journalism, who, who you know, take more of a stand on issues, but back then nobody was doing that. So uh, the idea that there was more that you, you had a responsibility to help people, became much more because people are looking what's going on in the world. And so I think that was my experience in Sudan, that there was something else I could do. Reporting is absolutely necessary. So I'm not in any way trying to disrespect my journalist friends, but I'm saying sometimes we're called to do more. And that's what happened to me. I'm curious, Reverend. So, you know, you've talked a lot about your career and you talked about how, you know, in making that jump, you had to step out on faith. What would you say stepping out on faith and in that journey has taught you about yourself? Uh, that there, I can do more than I think I can do. There's more to me. And I, I say this to young people mm. all the time. There's more to you than you know. Mm. Um, when I say stepping out on faith, that's usually about risk taking. Uh, and, and, you know, we are a risk averse, uh, you know, world because who wants to, you know, fail and who wants to be rejected and who wants to have things that don't work out. But we are living in times now where it's just a risk to go to the grocery store. It's a risk to step out of your apartment. Right. So I, I call people to take more risks, not just reckless risks, risks for doing good, risks for helping people. It's, uh, you know, what John Lewis called good trouble. It, it, it's it's, it's um, realizing that there's something more to you and you have a responsibility to do more. Uh, King Boston is standing for that. There are other organizations that stand for that. And I call a people because these are times when if we don't take risks, nothing's going to, we're not going to make any, I don't think change is going to come. So you brought up King Boston, you know, that's a favorite subject of mine. Um, please tell us about how you how you got involved with King Boston and, and your journey to, to working with with the and getting on um, on board as uh, one of our board chairs. Well, um, Paul English, whom mm -hmm. I guess you know, Paul uh, called me uh, back now. It seems like a long time ago because he wanted to do something. So I have to give credit where credit's due. There have been uh, efforts, since I've been in Boston, there have been efforts to do some kind of honoring to the Kings, to because they went to school here, because they did some you know, real good justice work here, uh, but it, they've always failed, these, these efforts to do memorials and these efforts to do some kind of commemoration. And what Paul English did, first of all, Paul English put a million dollars down and said, so that, that eliminated a lot of problems right there because he started with finances that I'm going to, I'm not just going to talk about this, I'm going to do it. I don't know why it's been so difficult over the years. So when he called me, uh, I was excited about the possibility of, of doing something as long as it wasn't just a memorial, as long as there was something that uh, could also uplift the people because that's what the Kings work for. Um, I met Martin Luther King. Well, let me back that up. I saw Martin Luther King when I was a little girl. So that was, that was my era. So mm -hmm. I'm a King girl, you know, and I, he came to Arch Street Baptist Church in Little Rock when I was uh, just a little girl. And my father took me to be there. Um, well, actually my father probably knew more about it than I did, but for me, it was just, I was being babysat by my father. So I went wherever he told me to go. But I do remember the electricity of that moment in time. And this was right after the Montgomery bus boycott just at the beginning of the movement. So I have that history, as I told you, growing up in Little Rock. And when I was had the, uh, afforded the opportunity to be a part of something that was going to be bigger than just a statue, that was going to entail the whole community, I was excited. I was excited, but had no idea that it would grow and take uh, root and take wing 
like it has under Imari Parish Jeffries. I mean, uh, the fact that you guys have turned this into not just a, a dream, but something that is working right now in changing so many sectors of the community is staggering. That's stunning to me. Uh, and I'm honored to be humbled to be a part of that. Listen, as long as it seems like we're doing a good job, I'm happy. If you're happy, I'm happy. You guys are doing an incredible job. Uh, and not just raising funds, but being yeah. engaged, the embrace, and, and really being thoughtful about what uh, this, this uh, organization, this institution can do for the total uh, uplift and, and reconciliation. Again, healing. Because uh, we're in a time that we have to figure out how we're going to get this thing together. I think you guys have tapped into that. And I'm just excited to watch you as you continue to grow this out. We've got a couple more tricks up our sleeve. We're not done yet. So looking ahead to 2022, you know, we're excited. You know, Craig has talked a lot about the... Uh, the Embrace Ideas Festival and, you know, Mass Budget's work is really around envisioning equity, looking ahead to the future. What are your hopes for Boston and for the Commonwealth and for our society, uh, you know, moving beyond the, the limitations of what we're currently experiencing in a, in a dream state? What are your hopes, Reverend Walker, for the future? Well, there's lots of things that obviously we have to do. I mean, equity, economic justice, education in every area that we need work. What I, I'm most hopeful, I think, is the, the idea that you're going to engage all of Boston in this. I think the potential for across the board, break through the tribes, get all the neighborhoods engaged, that is groundbreaking because that's not happening anywhere. Uh, and if Boston can do something that in working on solutions that we are working on now, lots of tough, tough issues. I'm not naive about that but engaging as many people from all different sectors to be a part of it, that is saying something. So I'm hopeful about not just the end, but the means to the end. Uh, you know, I hope we'll see some kind of economic equity because Boston is out of control right now. And we have got to make, I think we have a mayor who has a vision for equity and who's gonna do some, again, radical things that are gonna help but we've all got to get involved in how we uh, pull people out of, of, of the, the, the deep uh, holes that some people are in uh, economically, to, uh, really and really beyond their own faults, I think, uh, pulling them out of that, pulling them out of uh, the housing problem. Uh, you know, but healing is another issue. And I think that King Boston has the potential to be a healing uh, institution. And I hope that, you know, you guys will continue to work out of that kind of uh, grounding. I think one of the things that King Boston has done really well, particularly with the new Boston coalition is creating the space for that dialogue, you know, talking about reparations, talking about things like critical race theory in spaces where it's cross-functional, it's cross-sector, and it's bringing all these thought partners together. Um, you know, you can't underestimate the value of community, especially given how disconnected we all are in an age of ever more and ever growing connectivity with the internet and TikTok, like we were talking about and Zoom and all of this. There's just so much opportunity. Yes, you guys, you're on to something. And I think that you just need not give up. And I say that because, you know, those of us who have been in this struggle for as many years as I've been in this struggle and Sarah Ann Shaw has been in this struggle and Mel King and all the elders who, who now are, you know, growing weary and like, would like to sit down. And well, we know that this is not uh, a sprint. Obviously, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon uh, because change is difficult, this kind of change. And it's very easy to grow discouraged. Um, you know, because you take one step up and you might take two or three steps back. So I uh, think that one of my roles as an elder is to tell young people, to tell your generation and the one beyond you, the one under you, is that just you have to keep fighting for this because it happens. It just doesn't happen in that way that you might think and that overnight, you know, it, it takes work and commitment. And I, I also, you, you talked about the, the generational piece, and that for me is a major thing, is to be able to, to start to connect people outside of their silos and outside of their generation so they get to, like, I love talking to you and I, I love speaking with you, but I know that the person that I think definitely needs to talk to you is Danielle Johnson from Spark FM. 
young lady who started her own media company. Like if anybody needs to talk to you. So we, you know, one of my new goals is to start figuring out ways to get people, all the right people in the room um, so that, that people can learn and grow and build from one another. So we'll be drafting you for that soon. Okay. <laughs> well, if I'm not here, somebody else will be here, but no, you, it is, it has to be intergenerational. It has to be all of us. We can't, no, no one group can do it all. <laughs> she's covered it all. She's giving, she's giving us all the all right. gems, man. She's giving, I'm like, we're going to have to bring her back because we, we definitely want to get more. I want to go back at one point or another and really kind of dig into the reporting because coming here in the eighties and go that's that 20 year career at a time in Boston when all types of things are going on. It's like a different she, place. Yeah. She, and, and <laughs> you know, you've had the front seat for a lot of stuff, you know, you had the, the front seat to see it right there. It is just, I know you are a key part of, of, of reporting on some incredible Boston stories. So one day we're just going to sit there and just talk about some of the, the big, big, you know, stories that you've been able to. I also would love to come back and tell you about our trauma work because we think. Oh, yes, please. I'm sorry, uh, we can talk about that now. I love to talk about history, but we're working on community trauma and healing. So we're saying that Trauma is a massive problem all across the COVID. Everybody's traumatized to a certain extent, but it's also a very personal problem. And we're trying to, as a church, as an institution, add our you know clout and our institutional uh, importance or significance to working with it. Right now in Boston and across the country, and this is a fact, there are not enough therapists. Even mm. if you if you thought you needed a therapist, and a lot of people don't even realize they might need somebody to talk to, there are not enough professionals. It's just we're at a, a critical point. And so we're trying to be that support in the community that you can come to us once a week. We will have these uh, events. So I, I kind of compare them to AA, and that's not really fair, but meaning that it's anonymous, it's a group, and, and, we can and, a, and it's a safe environment to talk about, you know, all of the issues that you face because we're facing a lot right now mm -hmm. and you, and you can't do this by yourself. So we've created that at uh, Roxbury Presbyterian church and we are replicating it right now. We have about seven other locations in the Boston area in Codman square, South Boston, Dorchester. Oh, uh, we have a, a location in Lowell and we're trying to replicate it even, even further, even farther. Uh, around the state so that people know there's community places you can go and talk about your pain and talk about all the things that you, you maybe feel awkward to talk about publicly, but in a safe environment. So I just want to do a little plug for that. Uh, it's called Can We Talk? And uh, we have a trademark on that, Can We Talk? And we're hopefully going to grow. Uh, to let people know that you're not alone. You don't have to go through this craziness alone. It, it, you know, it's, it's interesting yeah. to, to hearing you talk about that work because, you know, I think more and more people are getting comfortable, uh, particularly in our community, to have even those conversations. Like, I, you know, I think about uh, Reese Menachem's, um book, My Grandmother's Hands, and talking about the whole concept of carrying trauma in your body and, like, when I read that book, it just like, it almost like it reached into my head and just flipped the light switch because it automatically made me start to look at everything and understand people a lot more. Like I know before, I think uh, I, I give uh, people a lot more grace than I may have done. Um, yeah. Just because I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, you're not even, th this conversation isn't about you and I and this, what, this, what the problem is here. I, I am a representation of the 15 things that, have, that bother you, that got you to this moment. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's across the board. When you wonder, when they look, when history looks back at how we got into this political mess that we're in right now, uh, this mess was fuming before this 45, before this last president. This mess was building before him. He's a symptom more than he is the cause. Absolutely. People not feel heard. They felt like everybody's listening to one side, but nobody's listening to my side. I guarantee you that's a trauma-based issue. 
So yeah, this is a absolutely, we're not, we walk like when I came to Boston and you felt like you were walking into a fight. That's mm-hmm. how, that's what trauma is. You're walking into something that was happening generations ago, slavery, and has never been dealt. And if you don't heal, uh, if you don't fix it, you know, not fix it, but be aware of it, name it, it just festers and pops, festers and pops all the way down the road. And that's the mess we're in in this country now. So healing is absolutely, that's your word, an imperative. We have got to heal on every level and it's possible. Well, I mean, listen, with the work that you're doing, with the work you've done, not even that you're doing currently, even the work that you've done throughout your career as a journalist and then throughout your career through the ministry and the current work you're doing in trauma, I think that you're you're right in that space of, of helping us work our way through this. And we appreciate you for for taking the time to talk to us today about that. Like, you know what? It's amazing. So I, I'll, I'll ask you this as a journalist. You ever, when we do these podcast episodes, we used to have these conversations and I just look up and it's like, it's an hour later. <laughs> it's like, how did that time right. go? I just, <laughs> just went like that. Well, this was a great conversation. You guys are great questioners. You're asking the right questions or or thought provoking questions. And I've enjoyed this time with you both. Even Thank though you. I have to say that I pushed Greg out of a line that has just been the bane of my own personal trauma. We were in line to take a picture and I, I was in a rush and I thought I said I could get I could get in front of him. And I kind of just and I just apologize. Just want to do that. No, that was not a big deal. Don't worry about that. And listen, if I can't shut up and get out of the way for Liz Walker, for Reverend Liz Walker, I think I could do that for you know what I mean? So tired and out of my mind that day. So I just want to publicly say I don't generally push people. <laughs> didn't push you but i kind of i'm 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 that's fine i accept that i'm actually happy that you just said that i'm a good that i'm good at asking questions like i'm i'm gonna live on that for a couple weeks this has been fun so thank you thank you very much for having me thank you so much for joining us reggie you take us out well ladies and gentlemen that's all that we have for you today reverend lids walker thank you so much for joining us and we hope everyone is committed to some extra good trouble We'll see y'all soon.